Well, yesterday, um, I've been training for months and months, and yesterday I ran a half marathon. And, oh, no, 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 no. That's not why I say that. And, you know, I, from my old high school sports days, I still have a routine before I do, like, an athletic thing, and that's I listen to hip-hop music, you know? And so yesterday I was listening in my hotel room as I was getting ready for my race in Philadelphia. And uh, I was listening to Eye of the Tiger because it was Philadelphia and Rocky, you know. But I also was listening to Slim Shady, okay? The clean version because I'm a pastor, okay? But I was listening. You know that song. If you could have everything you ever wanted in one moment. One shot. Would you capture it? And then he talks about mom's spaghetti, all that stuff. You know, I was getting hyped up for my race. But there's that line. He says, if you could have everything you ever wanted in one moment, would you capture it? And I laugh. I I listen to that. I'm like, yeah, let's take it. Like, I want this victory, you know. And it pumps you up like for sports. But think about the question. If you could have everything you ever wanted, what what is it that you want? If you could have everything you ever wanted, what is it that you really want? Can you even answer that question? Um, See, that's the question that I think all of us are asking in some way. Um, The one thing that I've noticed in my own life, though, is that the thing that I want one day, like the thing, uh, C.S. Lewis calls it all I want syndrome. The thing that all I want today will probably change tomorrow. Or at least it changes from season to season. So I want this relationship. I want this accomplishment. I want this certain level of security. But then when those things are acquired, I immediately move on to, well, you know, now I I want this. That didn't satisfy me. That didn't fulfill me the way I hoped. Now I want something else. And that is the question that the Israelites wrestled with or wrestling with all throughout the book of Exodus. What, What do they really want? We want to be free from Pharaoh. God sends them a deliverer. Moses stands up to Pharaoh. Pharaoh makes him work harder. Why did you send us a deliverer? It was fine before that. Moses, uh, we want to be free from slavery. God rescues them. And they're like, oh, you remember the food in Egypt? You're like, what do you want? Do you want to be free or do you want the food from slavery? Remember the last couple of weeks. They say, God, we will do everything you tell us to do. Your commandments are good. Your commandments are great. We will do everything you tell us to do. That's what we want. Hey, Moses is taking a long time. Let's worship a golden calf. What do they really want? Do they want God? Or do they want to worship a God of their own making? See, that's the, the story of Israel is a story of a people who can't quite figure out what they want. Do they want to be free? Do they want to obey the Lord? Do they want the promised land? Or do they want to go back to the way things were in Egypt? It was slavery, but it was comfortable. And throughout our study in Exodus, we have seen, I hope, just how similar we are to the Israelites. Like we, we study their lives and you're like, man, we are not that different. We're never fully sure of what we want. We're never fu- fully sure, sure of what we're looking for. So we oscillate from one place to another. I want to honor God. But I also want to go my own way. What do you really want? That's the story of Exodus. That's the story of the Israelites. Like, what do they want? And the story, remember, it begins in slavery. They were God's chosen people. But think about this. They were God's chosen people. God chose them before they were in slavery through Abraham. 
They were God's chosen people, but they were unable to experience God's presence and power because they were enslaved. So what does God do? God says they're not able to experience my presence because they're in slavery. So I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to intervene. And God intervenes into their slavery because he wanted to know them and he wanted them to know him. He didn't want them to know him merely by stories from their grandfathers. He wanted them to know him personally. So he delivered them from slavery. He saved them. He brought them unto himself out in the wilderness and promised to lead them into the promised land. And his presence was with them and before them. And his, the wilderness, even though it was treacherous and uncertain, God was with them in their midst. He spoke with them. He provided for them every meal he gave to them. He guided them in the way that they should go. And he showed them how to live. But they kept looking back. They're like looking back behind their shoulder. Oh, Israel. Oh, Egypt. Look at Egypt. And so they would look at Egypt and they would look at God. They would, we want Egypt. We want God. We want Egypt. We want God. And they couldn't quite decide what they really wanted. Do they want God's presence and power or do they want the comfort of slavery? Well, then remember, Moses went up on a mountain to speak with God. He's gone longer than anticipated. They get impatient. They get upset. They take off their jewelry. They melt it down, form it into an idol, and they start worshiping it. And we talked last week that that is a total betrayal of God. It's spiritual adultery. And the heartbreak and the anger that God feels is palpable when you read the scriptures. God's angry with their sin. He's angry that they've broken their relationship, that they've been seduced by lesser gods when he offered them himself. And last week we saw that in his mercy, even though they turned from him to worship a golden calf, he did not destroy them. He could have and he would have been just to do it because they broke the covenant. He could have started. He could have chosen a new group of people and started all over and he would have been just to do it. But he was merciful and he spared them. He did not destroy them, but the story doesn't end there. Our story continues today in Exodus 33. This is after all this has happened. He says, look, I'm not going to destroy you. But in Exodus 33, the Lord says to Moses, now depart. I want you to leave Sinai. Go up from here. You and the people who have brought you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with with milk and honey. Go to the promised land. I'll defeat your enemies. I'll make a way for you. There will be milk and there will be honey and there will be beauty and there will be security and safety. It will all be there. But I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff necked people. Now, that's an interesting development. God says, look, all that you want, all that you've been longing for, stability, wealth, luxury, food, status, everything I promised you, you can have it. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to send an angel to lead you to the promised land. Notice he says an angel, not the angel of the Lord. Remember all throughout the early parts of Exodus, it says the angel of the Lord. It's talking his presence. Now he says an angel. I'll send an angel to lead you to the promised land. and He'll take you where you want to go. He's going to take you into the promised land. But I'm going to stay back. I'm not going to go with you because you guys are stubborn 
You continually demonstrate that you don't trust me. You don't honor me. You don't even really seem to indicate that you want me. So you guys go ahead. Now, for most people, that is the dream offer. That, I mean, God will give you all the success you want, all the relational fulfillment you want, all the wealth and security that you want. They will, I will make your nation great, God says. All your political desires will be filled. Your party will be in office in every seat for all time. But I'm going to leave you alone. I'm going to stay back. You can have all those things. You, you can have all those things that you've ever wanted. And you don't, even have to follow, you don't even have spiritual obligations. There's no tabernacle to maintain. There's no commandments, no religious obligations. You can have everything you ever wanted, but I'm going to stay back. Moses will go with you. So if you still want like a chaplain or like some kind of religious professional to make you feel good, he'll be there. That's what I'm offering. Everything you want, I'm going to stay back. And if you remember... The Exodus event happened because God wanted a relationship with his people. But they seem to keep recoiling against that. And this arrangement allows them to have all the blessings of God without the relational entanglements of God. This seems to be exactly what they wanted. The blessings of God, but without the messiness of a relationship with God. And after all the failures and the struggles that the Israelites have had on this journey with God so far, you would think that they would jump at this offer. Sweet. See you later. But verse four is interesting. It says, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. They mourned. It was a disaster. And what are the ornaments that were, they didn't put on him? That's their jewelry. Now, why is their jewelry off? They took their jewelry off to build a golden calf, to melt it down into a calf. And what's left of their gold on the floor, they say, you know, we don't want it anymore. We'll leave it at your feet, God, because we now see what our sin has cost us. And we'll leave the gold. What we want is you. See, that is genuine repentance. That's not just grief over their sin, but action. They say, we betrayed you by taking that jewelry off. We're not going to put it back on. And they're brokenhearted because God has said, I'll send you. you got, God has told them he's leaving them. And they're brokenhearted. And so Moses goes back to God and he pleads with God. 33, this is verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I will know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. And Moses speaks God's promises back to him, speaks God's word back to him. He says, now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said back to him, listen to this. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses says, look, 
If you're not going, we're not going with you. Or we're not. If you're not going, we're not going. And if you're staying, we're staying. And I want you to see the value, the indescribable value of the presence of God. Because the maturity of Moses and the people here at this moment in the story is incredible. And it's kind of unexpected. Like you expect Moses to be mature at this point because we've seen he's a, he's a good leader up to this point. But the people have been so stubborn. And you're like shocked by their maturity in this moment. They've learned something about God in the wilderness. Something is happening in their souls. They're learning the truth about who God is. And despite their constant failures and lookbacks, they are growing. And they're learning to value the presence of God. And so let me ask you. If God offered you everything you ever dreamed of. Money, health, status, family, even heaven. Like you can have heaven. But he said, I'm not going to be there. Would you take that offer? And for Moses and the people, they've learned something about God on their journey with God that makes them say, no way. Now, why would they turn this down? Because if we're honest with ourselves, it seems like a pretty good deal. All the blessings of God without the entanglements of a relationship with God. They have seen and they are learning that without God's presence, everything else is meaningless. Some of you were here a few years ago, and you remember I preached a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a unique book. I don't know if you've ever studied Ecclesiastes, but Ecclesiastes is one of the greatest philosophy texts in all of literature, one of the greatest pieces of literature in all of history. It's basically the summary of an experiment conducted by who we think is King Solomon. And Solomon is one of the wealthiest, most powerful, most privileged people to ever walk this planet. But he was also very wise and he was very curious. And he wanted to know what is life all about? What gives meaning and joy and satisfaction in this life? And so he literally tested wealth, power, wisdom, intellect, beauty, sex, relationships, possessions, success, parties, and celebrity. Like he literally says in the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, he's like, look, um, he says, look, uh, he said, I'm going to test all these things. And in the end, he says, it is meaningless. It's meaningless. All is meaningless. He says, I've had all the wealth in the world you could ever have. He's like, I'm the king of Israel. He had it all. And he was like, wealth does not give you everything you thought it would give you. He says, I've had all the relational fulfillment you could ever dream of. He had like 800 wives and then some concubines as well. We don't have to get into that. But he had relational fulfillment. And he was like, that doesn't satisfy the longing deep in my heart. There's a God-shaped hole in my heart that's not being filled. He's like, I've had celebrity. I've had intellect. I've had wisdom. I've had possessions. I've had the nice house. I've had the nice furniture, the nice appliances, the nice wardrobe. I've had it all. And I'm telling you, meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless is what he says. Vanity of vanities, one translation says. All is vanity. I think of there's that 60 Minutes interview with Tom Brady. Where Tom Brady, who is like, I mean, he, he's Tom Brady. He's an attractive guy. Like, we don't, I mean, I'm like 34 and bald and skinny. And I, would, I wouldn't mind looking like Tom Brady. <laughs> he's got a million Super Bowls. He's got a ton of money. 
married to a supermodel. He's got fame. He's got it all. And there's an interview with 60 Minutes where he's like, he literally says, he says, I've got it all. Supermodel wife, 600 Super Bowl rings, all the fame, all the celebrity. And he says, I think to myself, my God, there's got to be more to it than this. Solomon was an ancient Tom Brady who said, I've experienced, this is what Solomon said, I've experienced everything under the sun and I've found that for any of those things to be enjoyed, we must look beyond the sun. Without God, none of those things can satisfy. And he uses this word havel over and over again, which means vapor or smoke or meaningless. And the idea is like this vapor. He's like all the things, fame, fortune, sex, uh, celebrity, all these things, it's like smoke. It looks enticing and it looks like it's something, but when you try to grab it, it just slips through your fingers. And he says, it's fun for a moment, but it's not solid enough to build your life upon. See, Ecclesiastes can be summarized like this. God's blessings are great. Solomon doesn't tell you that those things are bad. He says they're fun, but they're not fully satisfying. Without God, they're empty. And I remember the first time I studied Ecclesiastes, I was in college. And I still was naive enough to think that if I just got a good job, a beautiful wife and kids and money and you know, all that sort of stuff, that life would be great. And I remember studying this book and I remember telling my dad, I was like, Dad, this is depressing. I was like, this says that if I got everything I ever wanted, I would still have nothing. And my dad laughed. I was like, how can you laugh? This is like depressing. And my dad is a pretty successful guy. 40 year marriage, three kids who love Jesus. He's been successful in his line of work. And he was like, Will, you're going to learn as you grow older that you can achieve and you can achieve and you can achieve. But those things without God bring nothing. Amen. But with God, there's fulfillment in those things. There's another book in the Old Testament that's essentially the opposite of Ecclesiastes. It's called Job. If Ecclesiastes is the story of a man who gained everything, Job is the story of a man who lost everything. And here's what's so fascinating. You read the final chapters of Ecclesiastes and read the final chapter of Job. One man loses everything, one man gains everything, and they both come to the same conclusion. All is despair without God. But with God we can have joy, even in despair. And this is exactly the situation of the Israelites in our text today. They have an opportunity in this moment to gain everything, but they have to forfeit the presence of God. And they rightly understand that without God, none of those things would bring real joy. The promised land won't be fulfilling without God's presence. And listen, I know for some of you, this just like, honestly, this doesn't make any sense. And some of you, you're like, even you're like, man, the reason I even come to church is because I hope God will give me those things. You're like, I do religion so that I'll get the blessings. Like if I could get the blessings without the religion, I would do that. And some of this, you're like, this doesn't make sense. Why would they turn this down? Think of it like this. Imagine for a moment that you are married to the person of your dreams and they are very wealthy. And you're in a relationship with them and you love them deeply and they are good to you. And when you are with them, you feel loved and valued like never before. And you love them deeply and your relationship with them brings you ultimate joy. Their presence is everything to you. But then imagine in a moment of stupidity, in a lapse of judgment, you're on a business trip 
and you commit adultery. You just messed up. And you break the relationship. And then your spouse comes to you and says, you know, you broke our covenant. You promised not to do this. You promised to be faithful for a lifetime. I'm hurt. I'm heartbroken. And I'm angry. But I'm, I still love you. And I'm going to be gracious. You can have the house. You can have everything. The boat, the cars, our investment accounts, portfolio. I'll put them in your name. You can have all of my wealth. You can, that vacation that we planned together for this summer. Here's the tickets. Take whoever you want. But I'm leaving. Is that a good deal? Only if you don't love the person. But if you've experienced the joy and the love of that person, if you know what you're losing, that's a terrible deal. No amount of money or vacations or house can, can, can give you back what you just lost. Because you know that the greatest blessing of that relationship was not the things that the person offered for you, but their very presence. That's the situation Israel was in. They've committed spiritual adultery. And God said, fine, you can have it all, but I'm out. And they realized what they were losing. In verse 17, it says, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by my name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. And don't you just love Moses? Like he's such a negotiator. And he's asked for more. He's like, God, you're gonna, your presence is going to go with us, but I want to see your glory. And that word glory in Hebrew <coughs> is the word kavod. And it means weight. And what does it mean if something is weighty or it carries weight? It means it's significant. It means it's substantial. It means it's satisfying. And Moses knows that there was glory in the promised land. There was glory in national security. There was glory in wealth. There was glory in having milk and honey. And I, but I think Moses is asking, God, we just turned down this offer. I need you to show me that you're more glorious than all those things. I need you to show me that you're weightier than all those things. I think Moses is saying, God, I believe in part that you are everything, but I need you to show me in a greater way. That we were right, that you are better than everything else, and that if we don't have your presence, we have nothing. When Moses asked, God, show me your glory, I kind of think of that man in the Gospel of Mark who says, I believe, but just help my unbelief. Show me your glory so I can know that this is the right choice. And God said, I will make, this is verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you can't see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see just my back, but my face shall not be seen. God says, look, I'm going to show you my glory, but not all of it, because it would kill you if you saw it all. But I'm going to show you a little bit, and that's going to be enough. And he says, when I pass by, I'm going to tell you my name. And God's name represents his character. It's not just what he's called, but it's who he is. In Hebrew culture, a name is not just a, a sound. 
that you react to because that it's connected to you. Your name is your character. It's who you are. And God says to Moses, I'm going to tell you my name. I'm going to tell you my character. In Exodus 34, verse 4, it says, So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai. And as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now I want you to know the value of God's name. See, there's something about the name of God in Scripture, isn't it? Isn't there? His name reveals His character. When we know his character, we experience his presence with us. You know, anytime we do like a Bible study where it's like we're going to study the names of God, the signups are through the roof. Why? Because we all know in our hearts that if we knew the names of God, we would experience the pleasant, the presence of God. My wife, I was talking to her this morning when she was in college. Uh, I talk to my wife every morning, but we were talking about this this morning. And she was telling me that when she was in, when in college, she went through a season of very, very, like a, a very painful season of loss and grief. And the way she found hope and joy again in the midst of that season is she found a Bible study on the names of God. And it had the scriptures and she read the scriptures and she studied what the scriptures said about the names of God. He's provider. He's you know, Jehovah. He's all these things. And she said, I began, she began going to a park every day. And just studying the names of God. And she said, that is where I learned God's character. And that's where I felt his presence in the midst of great pain. And she said, I learned that God's presence and that his character is the greatest gift that God offers us. And she said, that season of studying God's names helped me to take my eyes off of my circumstances and put them on God's character. And she said, what I learned is that my circumstances can always change, but God's name never will. And when Moses heard God's name, he experienced his glory and it led him to worship. Verse eight says, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take for us your inheritance. He sees God's character and he says, God, you are gracious. I need you to be gracious to us. And God answers his prayer. Verse 10, God says, behold, I'm making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Now, I've labored all week trying to figure out how to teach this text. How do I convince you that God's presence is what you really want? How do I even explain God's name? 
All these things in this text, there's so much to study in this text. There's the cleft of the rock. And it's like, do I explain to that? That's like, uh, like, what is that? That's like a way of Christ. Like we're protected in Christ. There's the seeming contradictions. God is a God of forgiveness, but he also is just. And he, he, he does not l- let sin go unpunished. Like I could talk about all that. But my question was like, how can I convince you that his presence is what you really want more than anything? And the truth is this. I can't convince you of that. You need the Holy Spirit of God to reveal to you who He is. And you need an open heart to receive what He is saying to you. And I can try to explain the names of God, but what I want to do this morning, and what I would end up doing if I tried to explain, is over-explain. And I'd give you academic explanations for what God means when He says, I'm merciful and I'm gracious and I'm slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But what I want to do this morning is not try to over-explain or give you an academic understanding of what God's name is. I just want to tell you some of the names of God and trust that the Spirit will show you the glory in His name. One of the great sermons of all time was preached by a guy named Dr. S.M. Lockridge. And it was called, That's My King. And for basically he stood up and he preached a sermon where he just named off the names of God. He didn't offer commentary. He didn't offer his interpretation. He just listed off God's names. And it is known as one of the greatest sermons in English speaking history. And I want to read some of it to you. Some of God's names. S.M. Lockridge says the Bible says he's a seven way king. He's the king of the Jews. That's a racial king. He's the king of Israel. That's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? Do you know him? He asked. Don't mislead me. He said, do you know my king? David said, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. My king is the only one whom there are no means of measure that can define his limitless love. No far seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supplies. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He is impressive. He is unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of true religion. That's my king. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. Well, 
Dr. Lockridge says. He's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and tried. He sympathizes and He saves. He's strong and He guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. And He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And He beautifies the meek. Do you know Him today? Well, my King is a King of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the road of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty and the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes and the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors, the prince of princes. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. Yeah, that's my king. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His light is matchless. His goodness is limited. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Well, I wish I could describe Him to you, but He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you that the heavens of heavens cannot contain Him, let alone can a man explain Him. You can't get Him out of your mind and you can't get Him off of your hand. You can't outlive Him and you can't live without Him. The Pharisees couldn't stand it, but they found out they couldn't stop Him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in Him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. He has always been and he always will be. I am saying that he had no predecessor and he'll have no successor. There was nobody before him. There'll be nobody after him. You can't impeach him and he won't resign. That's my king. That's my king. our Redeemer. He is our Deliverer, our Salvation, our Passover Lamb, our Victorious Lion, our Everlasting Joy, our Righteousness, our Mercy, our Living Hope, our Strength, our Provider, our Refuge, our very present help in a time of need. He is our Sabbath rest. He makes a way where there seems to be no way. His rod and His staff comfort us and guide us. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He's the lifter of our shame. He is the bearer of our guilt. And He is the anecdote to all of our fear. He is mighty in battle. He is faithful. He is praiseworthy. He is glorious. He is alive. He is holy. He is jealous. 
He is everlasting. He is our rock. He is our manna in the desert. He is our streams of living water. And He is the fountain of life. If you could have everything you ever wanted, but not Him, what would you do? See, if you know His name, you will know that His presence is all you need for everlasting joy. Psalm 37 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. We complicate that passage so much because we're so selfish. We're like, He'll give me the desires of my heart. Well, what are the desires of your heart? The answer is in the verse. It's to delight yourself in Him. And some of you, I just, some of you need to meet this God. And we want to pray with you. And so in a moment, our deacons are going to come forward and we want to pray with you. And we want to help you see God for who He is. And we want to pray that you would know Him in the way that many of us know Him. In a way that would say, I, if you gave me everything, but you didn't go with me, I wouldn't want it. If you don't know God in that way, we have our deacons who are ready to pray with you and help you see God for who He is. We also have communion available for all Christians who want to celebrate Christ. And don't forget that it is Christ who is the image of the invisible God. All that is true of the Father's name is true in the Son. He is all these things in human form. And He remained true to His name while living in the midst of sinners. And the bread and the cup is a weekly reminder for us that we have His presence. And He is with us. And so I encourage you, come and celebrate that. Come take the bread and the cup. And if you need prayer, come pray with one of our deacons. You guys respond when you're ready.